This is a Library Channel program from the UC San Diego Library. Visit us at www.uctv.tv slash library channel for interviews, author talks, and other programs that will inspire you to read, write, think, and dream. I want to begin by saying a word about how this project began. Uh, the project really began with two basic questions that ultimately took me uh, in the directions that I will speak about tonight. The first, why have certain figures become such powerful and recognizable global symbols? And second, um, in some ways the more complicated question, how have they been reinterpreted over time? In asking these questions, I was much less interested in biographies. All of these figures are the subject of many, many biographies. Um, And certainly biography is part of the story. But what I wanted to do with this book was instead understand why we see them as important to begin with. Why audiences collectively interpret them in the way that they do. And how that perception Changes. As a historian, I was particularly interested in that second question. These are, of course, very large questions. And to narrow this down, I looked at roughly the last 50 years, a time during which the world has seen a significant rise in the number and diversity of globally recognizable images and personalities. Aided by diverse audiovisual technologies, the images and ideas of a great many popular figures have circulated ever further and have expanded our shared catalog of symbols, a kind of common symbolic vocabulary. Like earlier icons, the ones that have emerged or come to prominence in the last half century, uh, crystallize emotional, political, and spiritual longings. And in this way, they function very much like religious objects. Uh, In this sense, the the historic term icon is is valuable, in that individuals develop emotional, even quasi-spiritual relationships with these figures. Uh, In my book, I, I focus on this phenomenon in particular with Bob Marley. But their particular power often lies in their form, in this human form, as they put flesh to the bones of mythos and ideals. So the global icon in many ways gives physical form to human connection and thus offers a means to articulate both, um, both to articulate, I should say, and imagine communities, many, many different kinds of communities, communities of ideology, uh, of identity, and often less tangible communities, something I found particularly interesting, uh, communities of shared sentiment, of shared feelings. And this is a phenomenon that's equally uh, visible, equally important with the figures I look at, as well as someone like uh, Frida Kahlo or uh, Princess Diana or Bruce Lee. Now, within this vast field of global icons, what I wanted to do in the book was focus on one subset 
And so I focused on, I think, a fascinating yet understudied subset, the icon of dissent, what I call, uh, for the purposes of the book, and I, the icons of dissent, or figures that audiences perceive as challenging the socioeconomic and political order of the day. Figures that offer, in some ways, alternative visions for the world. Unlike other popular figures, of which, you know, thinking back to that previous slide, there are many, many recognizable figures of the last half century or so, audiences tend to identify with icons of dissent in, um, in, on many levels, politically, emotionally, even viscerally. And I think that's what makes icons of dissent a particularly interesting category. And they often become transcendent because of these multifaceted meanings that are projected onto them. Of course, icons of dissent also evidence another thing, and that's the strong gendering of iconic categories. Audiences tend to associate dissent, for instance, with traits stereotyped as male, aggression, bravery, violence, um, these sort of um, Again, stereotypical male traits. So they've been celebrated in many ways because they perform or amplify reductive notions of masculinity. And we see this kind of gendering in many uh, iconic categories. But because the ones that I look at represent kind of extreme forms of the modern icon, I think what they do is they illuminate particularly well the gendered, the political, the cultural complexities of iconic figures more generally. So that brings us to another question. Why Che Guevara, Bob Marley, Tupac Shakur, and Osama bin Laden together? Uh, That's a question I get a lot, actually. Why these case studies? Well, Part of the reason in choosing them is that they're otherwise very different. They fall into this category that I'm calling icons of dissent, but otherwise they're very different. They articulated divergent worldviews. They appealed often to different audiences. Uh, They had very different ideological underpinnings. But what's important here, and what I think is so curious, is that despite these differences, they were venerated, They were commodified, as I'll show in a moment, in remarkably similar ways. They were even conflated, in fact, in in some cases. Um, So I think that in looking at these very different figures, you can see some common denominators in how audiences uh, receive and project onto iconic figures. Now, by tracing these otherwise very different figures over time, the book makes a number of suggestions. But let me just give you a sense of the three general suggestions I'd like you to take away. First, the meaning of these figures derive from collective interpretations. But those interpretations are highly, highly selective. This entails often a distillation into just a handful of memorable images or phrases. So we can think, for instance, about uh, Tupac's refrain, me against the world, something that is very commonly repeated uh, in association with him. 
uh, Bob Marley's One Love, which I'll come back to uh, in a minute. This has become, in some ways, the dominant concept associated with Bob Marley. And uh, if we go back a little bit further in time, this image of Che Guevara, uh, image uh, originally dubbed the heroic gorilla. This is an image from 1972, but uh, but... Uh, this is probably the image that everyone is familiar with. And I'll talk about some of the um, permutations of that image in a second. But why, out of thousands of images of Che Guevara, why is this the image that became serialized uh, as early as 1967? Why is this the image that we're all familiar with, even if we don't know who it is, interestingly? So... Uh, Again, what we see is often the reduction of individuals to one particular trope, one particular uh, concept, one particular image, and so forth. Of course, what this process does is it strips figures of their ideological nuance, but it also facilitates their wider appeal, and it also facilitates their remarkable ease in reinterpretation of the remarkable ease of reinterpretation of these figures over time. And that takes me to point number two. Though icons often gain general symbolic meanings, um, and of course varied local connotations alongside those general meanings, these general meanings are often greatly malleable, I think far more so than we tend to recognize. They're uh, malleable over time, which is kind of the crux of what I want to explore today. So someone like Che Guevara, for instance, Che was made into much more than a socialist revolutionary. By the late 1990s, uh, he came to be seen as, in many ways, a rebel for nearly any cause, uh, not tied to any particular ideology. And um, I think this, the genius of this uh, street art uh, from Norway in, in circa 2006, uh, Che Guevara wearing a Che Guevara T-shirt, attempting to speak to that irony, um, again, which I'll come back to in a moment. And that takes me to the final point, and that's the malleability is critical to their longevity. These figures stay in the popular imagination precisely because they change, because they change over time, because we want to see new things in them. So their malleability isn't just critical to their global resonance in any particular moment, but also to their longevity in the popular sphere. In fact, the figures that remain most relevant tend to be those like Tupac Shakur or uh, Freddie Mercury, for instance, as we've seen recently, that are collectively reimagined for new historical moments. They're not simply inherited. We see something new in them. Let me give you a sense of what I uh, try to do with each of these figures. And I should say by way of introduction that, that each case study in this book looks at the particular trajectory of an iconic figure, but also the context of their resonance, why they gain the kind of global stage that they do. And most importantly, I look at the people that embrace these icons in different cultural and political contexts. So let me start with Che. Che presents us with a number of conundrums. 
this is the photograph that would ultimately launch uh, the more stylized image that we more frequently see. It was a photo taken in 1960 by Alberto uh, Corda Diaz, a Cuban photographer, but really wouldn't begin circulating for many, many, almost a decade thereafter. Of course, uh, we know Che Guevara as a kind of, um, you know, a revolutionary, a seductive, uh, countercultural figure in the 1960s and 70s. But why did Che gain the kind of level of resonance that others didn't? Why more than others? And if we fast forward to the most to, to the current decade, why was he the only global icon referenced? by Arab Spring demonstrators from Morocco um, all the way to Yemen, by anti-austerity protesters in Europe? Why was he the only one also referenced by Occupy activists around the world? Let me back up and say a few things about, uh, about Che in the 1960s and 1970s. In the 1960s and 70s, Che Guevara emerges as a powerful symbol of a kind of commitment to anti-establishment struggle. He also becomes an important symbol for transnational solidarity. The image on the left is of Kwame Touré, uh, formerly Stokely Carmichael, uh, uh, in Paris, Washington, D.C., 1967, both from 67. Uh, the picture on the right, uh, very soon after Che's death, the first um, major national anti-Vietnam War protest. He represents a kind of promise of socialist internationalism in the late 1960s and the early 1970s. And in many ways, Che emerges as a martyr for that vision. That makes him quite different from Fidel Castro, for instance, or from Mao Zedong, for that matter. So if we look at Che's uh, uh, symbolic value in the, in the late 1960s, we see this stylized image by an Irish artist named Jim Fitzpatrick in 1968, circulating very, very quickly in the spring and summer of 68, um, uh, especially in uh, Western Europe, in, uh, in uh, Mexico. Here's an image uh, from Mexico City in August of 1968. So one image of Che Guevara was already be beginning to circulate as a powerful and evocative image of uh, uh, international solidarity of left movements um, around the world, student movements and so forth uh, around the world. Uh, we see him even emerging as early as, six, as late 1968 uh, in terms of, you know, sort of a cottage industry in consumer goods. Again, using this particular image. Um, but it's important to recognize that his, his political valence was quite strong, even if people didn't describe to the same, necessarily the same political vision. Now, we can see resonances of this if we fast forward into the 1990s. The Zapatistas, the EZLN uh, in Chiapas, uh, Mexico, borrowed heavily uh, from Che iconography, used Che iconography significantly. This is an image of Mural painted in 1997 in one of the uh, Zapatista um, autonomous zones. Uh, but Che became a kind of linking point to, um, uh, to international uh, left movements. Uh, at that juncture. So he had a very clear political valence. But another thing was happening, and that was Che was, was more forcefully working into popular culture in the mid and late 1990s. 
He regains popular attention. He regains political allure in the uh, post-Cold War era. But his image was slowly emptied of its socialist connotations, um, at least in, in popular culture. Um, he regains political allure, but he's also transformed into a kind of brand-like logo, uh, a fashion logo, and a kind of logo for contemporary rebellion without a clear ideological underpinning. So um, I think maybe some of you have seen this film, Walter Salas's uh, The Motorcycle Diaries, came out in 2004. It represents, I think, a turning point. Uh, let's remember the Motorcycle Diaries themselves weren't, weren't published during Che's lifetime. The books that were popular about Che were not biographical per se during his life, but in the afterlife, focuses on his uh, biography became primary. And so we see Motorcycle Diaries emerging as a, a, a kind of a, a bestseller translated into many languages. And I think what's important is that this represents a kind of pre-political Che. It's not about the Cuban Revolution. It's not about um, the revolution in Bolivia that would ultimately lead to his death. Uh, it's about a sort of budding revolutionary, um, not tethered to any specific ideology. It's about his personal story. And that's what's important because that's the biography that attracted many people in the 1990s. We see this commodif rampant commodification of Che. Uh, El Che cigarettes on the left from Peru, uh, again with the, with the, the Diaz of Fitzpatrick Che. Uh, El Che Cola from, uh, from Mexico and many, many, many other examples. I'm sure you're all familiar with the way in which he became a sort of um, uh, pop culture symbol in this moment, used to kind of sell many, many different products. Here's a, a photo from uh, 2005, Mombasa, Kenya, where he's interpolated into other brands, uh, uh, brands of shoes in this case, Adidas, Nike, Puma, um, Che Guevara. So he's, he's abstracted in many ways from his political underpinnings. But I think one critical turn at this very moment is that as Che is being introduced to a new generation or multiple new generations through this kind of commercialization, he's also being interpolated once again into the political sphere. People are, are, are um, exposed to him through commercialization, but then he's re-politicized in the 2000s. And that's what takes us to his prominence um, in the Arab Spring, for instance. Uh, well, maybe most notably, Heroic Guerrilla is the template that Shepard Ferry uses in, um, in 2008 for this very famous image, uh, which is, of course, the most memorable image of the Barack Obama campaign. So we see ways in which uh, the image is re-politicized, but re-politicized in many, many ways across a political spectrum. Uh, fast forward a few years to Occupy Wall Street in 2011, we see uh, the use of, of Che Guevara as well in a very, very politicized context. So the point that I'd like to make is that um, is this commercialization propels Che's image. 
But commercialization in politics become mutually reinforcing. And I think that's the critical point that's often lost when we look at his commercialization, is that that becomes one avenue towards his, um, his, his re-entrance into the political sphere. In fact, in an even more forceful way than in the 1990s. We see him in, in Libya in 2011 as well, and in many, many contexts, uh, including, fast forward to 2016, uh, these <laughs> T-shirts which... Um, may not have been approved by the Bernie campaign, but certainly <laughs> were widely available, where Bernie is himself interpolated into this, into the, you might say, the matrix of Che, again, as the quintessential revolutionary figure. That's the connotation that he had taken on. So let me switch to say a, a few words about Bob Marley, because I look at Bob Marley's uh, uh, symbolic resonance from his rise to stardom in the 1970s to the present. Now, Bob Marley emerged as a celebrated uh, artist and international symbol um, for social justice. And this, in many ways, accelerated his rise to superstardom in the 1970s. His label, Island Records, absolutely marketed him as a rebel, to be sure, um, this is the, the album cover of his first LP released in 1973, a highly uh, charged, politically charged uh, album. He was often criticized in the, the media, uh, disparaged as a quote-unquote uh, cult leader. Uh, but his emancipatory message captured the imagination of people around the world, particularly in the Caribbean, but also post-colonial Africa, uh, Pacific Islands, in the West, and so on and so forth. His, his political message had deep resonance in the 1970s uh, and into the early 1980s. In fact, what was at the center of his popularity in his lifetime was this song and reference and phrase, get up, stand up stand up for your rights. Uh, this is a, a promotional poster from his very last tour promoting the album Uprising, uh, a series of politically, um, uh, very, very strongly politically oriented uh, albums from the late 70s until 1980. So Get Up, Stand Up is repeated at Tiananmen Square. It's repeated at the Berlin Wall in the late 1980s. It becomes the kind of clarion call of, um, of many... Uh, left movements in particular in the uh, late 1970s and the, and the 1980s. Now, by the end of the 1990s, uh, uh, well after Bob Marley's death, he becomes one of the most widely recognized musical artists in the world. But uh, this is an image taken right at the end of Bob Marley's life, his final tour. This is an image from Milan, a stadium that uh, drew more... more um, uh, drew a larger audience to see Bob Marley than, than drew to see the Pope uh, a few weeks before. So Bob Marley was uh, a superstar at the end of his life. But his emancipatory message became um, superseded, you might say, in the years immediately after his death. In fact, his ubiquity as, um, you know, as, a, as a globally recognizable figure had a lot to do with 
a shift of emphasis away from get up, stand up to this mantra, one love. His ubiquity in the 90s was in many ways the consequence of a reconceptualization of Bob Marley as a kind of quasi-religious icon, a kind of supra-religious icon. This is a t-shirt, a vintage t-shirt, again, focusing on this phrase. Here we have a shift towards a very narrow uh, 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 dimension of his canon. One love captures a kind of desire for a more concordant world in the midst of emerging a globalization. Um, and one love begins to overshadow this, uh, um, this theme of get up, stand up. And in many ways, this compromises the more radical nature of his message. His, his label is absolutely part of this. They begin to re-release his material. One Love, remarkably, was released as a single, re-released as a single many years after his death with a video and rose in the charts. Um, so there were many dimensions of his, uh, his uh, the rethinking of his image that had to do with marketing as well. Also, there was a widespread kind of um, piracy of his image, including things like this. So the commercialization of his image um, took his image in many, many, many different directions. Now, uh, I should say that One Love became so ubiquitous as an anthem uh, it was, some of you may remember, it was used, the tune at least was used uh, by uh, the Jamaican government um, as a means of marketing, uh, tourism in Jamaica. But it had become such a popular anthem that uh, even though Bob Marley was heavily criticized by the media in the United States um, during his life, uh, the song One Love was played on the National Mall at the stroke of midnight on January 1st. 2000, as it was on the BBC every hour as the world moved into the new millennium. So there was a widespread embrace of Bob Marley, and, and not just any song, but One Love specifically. Now, Bob Marley's heirs, uh, this is a dimension of the story that's maybe a little different from um, some of these figures, but uh, Bob Marley's heirs have tried to rein in some of this rampant commercialization, um, but have in turn also released uh, a number of or authorized a range of other products related to Bob Marley. I think in many ways commercialization has opened up a, a wider contemporary debate about the meaning of Bob Marley, probably more so now than uh, even in the 1990s or the early 2000s. So let me, let me quickly switch uh, to talk about Tupac Shakur, who, after his murder in 1996, uh, became an omnipresent voice of post-Cold War disillusionment. Now, Tupac's, uh, Tupac had a very prolific career, uh, both in music, as we, uh, as we remember, but also in film. He starred in, in a number of, uh, of very successful um, Hollywood films. But his renown grew in the years after his death, and this tracked closely to the rising uh, popularity, the international popularity of hip-hop as a genre, as hip-hop was becoming uh, an increasingly dominant uh, uh, musical form. 
So in many ways, Tupac's death, in, in a similar way to Che Guevara's, uh, his, his death, I should say, propelled his, uh, his, his stardom to ever higher levels. Now, Tupac was also vilified by political leaders uh, in the United States, often disparaged in the media during his life. But after his death, um, a kind of reinterpretation uh, occurred. So immediately after his death in 1996, what we see is Tupac emerging, uh, especially among young people in many different social environments, uh, as a kind of icon of masculinity, a powerful voice of uh, alienation, of individual and communal alienation, alienation in a new era of global inequality in the late 90s and the early 2000s. Uh, a lodestar for rebellion. Uh, this is one of the things that I focus on uh, in the book. These are uh, This is an image from Cape Town in, uh, in 2002, a mural that was uh, obviously featuring um, a very, an image very similar to the Rolling Stone cover. Uh, painted uh, several years earlier. Uh, But he became a lodestar for rebellion. In the book, I write uh, in some detail about the war in Sierra Leone in West Africa in the 1990s, where uh, the main uh, uh, rebel group, the Revolutionary United Front, uh, in 98, 99, and towards the end of the war, used Tupac T-shirts, as we see in this image, as military uniforms. He became such an important figure in the Revolutionary United Front um, thinking. But this wasn't just Sierra Leone. We see something similar happening in Guadalcanal. Uh, Fast forward to Libya in 2011. Tupac is also a really important figure for uh, revolution. And I think in many ways his message of social criticism became increasingly amplified in the 2000s um, this is uh, another image from Sierra Leone from Freetown in 2000, um, uh, another Tupac mural uh, not associated with the Revolutionary United Front, uh, painted by a, a different uh, group or, or commissioned by a different group altogether. Now, we see Tupac's uh, image taking on, on new form in the 2000s. His message of social criticism, as I mentioned, was amplified uh, particularly as the controversies around his life that defined his public image in life begin to fade. Uh, now, Tupac, of course, was a commercial success in life, but he was much more heavily commodified after his death. More albums of new material, and that's an important point, more albums of new material were released after his death than during his life. Um, he was the subject of this uh, uh, Broadway musical, Holler If You Hear Me, uh, the musical inspired by the lyrics of Tupac Shakur. Um, in fact, Tupac was even resurrected uh, in a much more dramatic way than any of the other figures that I consider. Um, perhaps some of you remember this, Coachella 2012, he was... Um, uh, this, what was called a hologram, but this image of Tupac was projected onto the stage uh, and he performed um, 
uh, with with Snoop Dogg at, at Coachella. This this had a kind of electric effect, especially for a generation of people who didn't know Tupac in life. Seeing him perform, albeit in this form, um, uh, had a very strong effect on audiences around the world. But he also appeared in Power Aid ads. Um, his, his voice and his poetry, uh, the Broadway musical that I mentioned. And recently, we've, rec- we've seen the redemption of his image in many, many forms. Uh, the redemption of his image uh, with a focus on specific elements of his canon. Perhaps some of you heard this very recently. Um, uh, presidential candidate uh, Andrew Yang uh, claimed Tupac as one of his heroes. Um, Marco Rubio actually has also spoken uh, about being a, a Tupac fan. So, uh, so Tupac's residence is in some ways greater now than it has ever been, but this is in part uh, 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 a result of the focus on, um, on, on certain dimensions of Tupac's canon. Now, let me end by saying a few words about uh, Osama bin Laden. Of course, the years after 9-11 saw an avalanche of literature and reporting on Osama bin Laden. Just trying to count up the biographies of Osama bin Laden is quite a task. Of course, Osama bin Laden was the focus of intense attention after, um, uh, after 9-11. But what is interesting is that in all of this, there was very little reflection on the symbolic meanings of Osama bin Laden, the uses of Osama bin Laden as a symbol. And those uses were quite diverse, as I want to um, uh, talk about now. He became a symbol onto which diverse audiences projected a wide range of sentiments, of fears, and more surprisingly, as I show in the book, aspirations. In many ways, Osama bin Laden became a myth-like figure uh, immediately after 9-11 and for many, many years thereafter. Uh, Of course, he was a ubiquitous symbol that focused American anger and angst and anxiety after 9-11. And in fact, he came to symbolize terrorism writ large Um, on a global scale. Now, of course, many viewed him as as simply a mass murderer, but he also became a figure of almost superhuman proportions in the way that he was constantly replicated and um, uh, used by politicians, uh, used as a symbol. But the flip side of this was that he became an anti-establishment symbol for some, a symbol of resistance for some, a symbol used to represent shared social and political grievances. This is an image, uh, actually two images uh, from Pakistan. The image on the left circulated um, quite widely beyond, uh, beyond Pakistan. And a, a, a symbol of shared social and political grievances among um, Uh, non-Muslims and Muslims alike. So I use examples in the book, not just from Pakistan, but from uh, across uh, the African continent, from Latin America, from South Asia, as well as Southeast Asia, 
And I focus on the myriad ways in which bin Laden was used to represent alienation amongst diverse audiences, uh, used to represent frustration with, uh, with domestic political repression, with global inequalities generally, the U.S. invasions of Afghanistan and later Iraq, and Western economic and military power in the world. Now, the interest in bin Laden was often rooted in the notion that one's individual or communal experiences were part of a larger system of repression and inequality that bin Laden's actions appeared to address. And so you see bin Laden represented often in posters and in T-shirts in a very similar fashion as sort of one man taking on these great forces. Um, uh, as you can see, the jets in the background, the bombs going off, even what looks like a nuclear explosion on the bottom right. These were common ways of representing uh, images of Osama bin Laden, almost always as this singular figure, which speaks to the way in which he became this kind of symbolic representation. But I think the critical point is that this was possible, at least to a degree, because many outside the U.S. read 9-11 as a kind of inversion of the global order, an inversion of, uh, of the world order. And the critical point here is that many audiences thereby uncoupled his image from his own narrow political vision and harnessed it as a much more general and imprecise multifaceted symbol of discontent. Even just a symbol of current events. This is a photo from uh, Nairobi, circa 2007, uh, a city that had uh, suffered immensely from an Al-Qaeda attack um, in 2000, oh, sorry, in 1997. Uh, and yet, here you also see images of Osama bin Laden. But as a result of this, much like Che Guevara, uh, Tupac Shakur and Bob Marley, Osama bin Laden was also very quickly commercialized. And commercialized in some shocking ways, some surprising ways to say the least. He was heavily commodified and widely reproduced as a popular logo. Uh, as, a, as cologne, uh, as we see here. Uh, and in many cases, these stripped Osama bin Laden of any kind of political meaning at all. In fact, here's a, a very uh, common T-shirt. This is an image that was uh, taken in Dhaka, Bangladesh. But this was a T-shirt that I've seen evidence of in many parts of the world with the simple caption, well-known. Osama bin Laden as a reference, not to any particular ideology or any particular political position, um, but rather as a reference to a kind of uh, uh, historical moment. So the kind of e even apolitical uses of Osama bin Laden um, we see in multiple world regions. So let me wrap up with a few thoughts to kind of bring all these strands together. First off, these icons, as you can see from this very short presentation, have been made and remade in a very complex and often surprising international dialogue, one that demonstrates 
a profound convergence of a number of things, but most notably political sentiment and consumer culture. And this is true since the 1960s. Maybe we see more extreme forms in the recent past, but we see the commodification of, uh, of, of Che as early as uh, the days after his death. And I think all of this, both the political side and the commercial side, represent a kind of intense yearning for meaningful connection in a global age. Moreover, these case studies suggest that attraction to icons is often not the idealization of that individual. In fact, that individual's life can be remarkably abstracted from the icon, the iconic symbolism itself. It's not the idealization of the individual per se or, the, or even their ideas in many instances. Rather, attraction to them is more often rooted in the idealization of what they symbolize of possibility or some you know, uh, other number in a range of sentiments um, and values. To put it another way, the critical elements in the making of myth-like icons are the sentiments and the values that their, audi- that their audiences, very diverse audiences, wish to see in them. And this is why the meaning of icons can change so dramatically over time. Ultimately, the appeal of icons is their dual aspect or their, their kind of double lives, how they connect individuals with broad transnational currents, while at the same time seeming to speak to very specific local circumstances, even personal circumstances. In short, global icons of dissent tend to globalize local concerns and demands and give them the weight, either real or imagined, of international consensus. This accounts for their unusual and indeed their remarkable allure. I'll stop there. Since you've seen these icons, Esther and you've talked about um, how you see other icons. Do you have any um, entrance in like further writing about this and seeing other patterns? Yes, thank you for that question. I would, of course, in writing any book, more questions come to your mind <laughs> than you can answer in the you know in the confines of of a book. And I think one of the things about this book about the research for this book um, uh, that was exciting to me is I realized a lot of what I was talking about, a lot of what I was finding in the research was relevant to figures beyond those that I was looking at. And in fact, beyond the category of dissent figures or figures associated with dissent. So I guess the short answer to your question is that What I'd like to do is expand this to look at a much greater diversity of figures, figures who, for instance, aren't even real. Because these, yes, these were real people who were made into myth-like objects, but what about, uh, you know, characters who were simply invented, fictional characters who take on some sort of um, real-life resonance that people, like, you know, superheroes, that people see something very powerful and emotive uh, um, in them, 
or Rambo. I mean, I write about Rambo in the book. The power, the seductive power of Rambo in the 1980s and into the 1990s was really remarkable. Um, I write about this in the context of the war in Sierra Leone specifically, but I think you can look at examples from around the world where a fictional character like that um, seemed to resonate quite deeply with people. So what I'd like to do is to kind of draw out some of the, lar- the, the larger strains of, uh, of, of argument in the book to look at uh, a more diverse group that includes both fictional figures as well as real people uh, across a much, much wider spectrum, um, which kind of opens the aperture in ways to talk about things that, uh, that they weren't necessarily the focus um, with this subset specifically. Thank you. Could you uh, sort of talk us, tell us a bit more about your process of actually picking uh, these four figures a bit more. Uh, I know, like there are these like broader themes of masculinity descent. Because uh, I just keep thinking of, uh, I started thinking about people in my mind that would uh, comfortably fit in here. Uh, Kurt Cobain, for example. Uh, so, and uh, I wonder if the issue of death is sort of all of these people having died in a certain way, uh, uh, sort of put their brand uh, sort of on steroids. Do you expect a similar transformation when the Dalai Lama dies or when uh, uh, <laughs> Paul McCartney dies, you know? When I started writing this book, Osama bin Laden wasn't dead. Um, but he had faded from the popular imagination in some remarkable ways. He wasn't seen as relevant anymore by the time he was uh, killed. And so um, uh, in many ways, his allure was lost long before he died. Uh, having said that, of course, when he died, the way in which um, his, symbol, his symbolism was a concern of the Obama administration, uh, the political uses of his, uh, of his death, for instance, uh, those, those were very important. And so I had to kind of go back and rewrite that chapter. Uh, but it's absolutely true that his... Um, uh, the particular image that I was speaking about of Osama bin Laden uh, began to shift dramatically uh, in around the middle 2000s. And so his death didn't have the effect on his image the way in which Che Guevara's death did. And so timing is a is very critical element when we talk about um, the kind of acceleration of the iconicity of figures. And that's equally true uh, with Che Guevara, for instance, uh, as it was with Tupac Shakur. Um, also, I think there's something really, really uh, um, profound about death in youth, because it because we like to read into that a loss of potential, potential unfilled. There was this, yeah, you know, possibility of what this person could have been that was cut short. Uh, that contributes to a kind of romanticizing of them. Uh, and, of course, uh, that certainly wasn't the case with Osama bin Laden. I mean, I think there are many, many other figures that one could look at. But in my research, in, in sort of looking uh, at some other figures, what I've noticed is, is some remarkable similarities with other uh, icons of descent, as well as icons that, that aren't necessarily associated with descent. Uh, I mean, I mentioned Freddie Mercury. One of the fascinating things about Freddie Mercury is 
the way in which he's resurrected in the recent past uh, has emphasis on different dimensions of his life and his his um, his canon, uh, his uh, his personality, and so forth, as in the 1970s, let's say, during his rise to stardom, or uh, the 1990s around his death. So. I think we see this, uh, you know, across the board with, with, with many, many figures. Now, let me address this decontextualization question. The sort of phenomenon of the meme is in many ways um, what I'm talking about in this book. The sort of the image with uh, an idea or a sentence or a concept associated with them. That in itself isn't a new phenomenon. The ease of replication, the ease of decontextualization is in some ways um, more than in the past. So I think it opens the door um, to, yes, anything becoming a brand, um, but anything sort of transferring from one movement or from one context to another. I would say that there is an acceleration, absolutely, but not necessarily a um, a, a radical conceptual difference between what I was uh, talking about in the 1960s. Because again, this image of Che Guevara, the, uh, what Jim Fath- Fitzpatrick called Viva Che, um, the kind of stylized, two-dimensional image of Che, that circulated even through uh, you know, the post and more traditional means very, very quickly uh, in the spring and summer of, um, of, of 1968. Um, but again, that was sort of passed amongst people in different movements in different, in different nations. So the rapidity is, of course, greater in the presence. But I think there are some fundamental things that aren't so different if we look at the circulation of, um, you know, of symbols. What is really interesting, this is maybe the last point I'll make, is that the re-signification of these symbols um, is in some ways more extreme in the present. If we go back, we think about that Tupac image of Tupac as an angel. Well, again, it's the image from the cover of Rolling Stone. But it's not even necessarily the case that everyone who uses that image knows that it's from this source. It can be reproduced in many, many different ways. And in fact, that one image of Tupac is primarily the one you see repeated again and again and again. Because for audiences around the world, it seems to tell the story of Tupac. It presents the image of Tupac in ways that are much more um, powerful or resonant than one of, uh, you know, as one of thousands of images um, than any other image. So I think the, the, the replication of a particular image um, is probably just as likely now as it was in the 1960s or 70s. Thank you. Thank you.